So my COVID story started um, the beginning of December. I had worked late the night before and the next morning I woke up and I just felt a little bit sore. I kind of um, assumed it was because I w had um, worked late, had walked around a lot the night before. Um, though looking back on it now, I'm pretty sure that that's, the, that's what we were counting as day one. Um, and I, I had taken a test the next day because the next morning I had not felt well and I was negative and I was like, hmm. And I kind of, I stayed home for a bit and then I, two days later I took another test and I was negative. So I was like, okay, maybe this isn't COVID. And so I just kind of chalked it up to being a little under the weather and took some vitamin C. Um, and then a day later I started really not feeling well. And um, uh, my husband and I were aware of the FLCCC protocol. So we started on a couple of them, but it wasn't until a couple of the, the supplements, but it wasn't really until I, maybe two days later, so that would have been day seven, that I really started to not feel well. We ended up going to the urgent care twice, um, had a nebulizer treatment, um, which I felt better on the first one. And then the next day I went back again and I was not feeling better. The doctor at the, the urgent care was like, you don't look good. Your vitals don't look good. You should go to the ER. So we um, consulted with our regular doctor and he said, yes, go to the ER. So we went to the ER and um, my oxygen levels had started to go lower and um, they, they didn't really have like a great solution. They just basically were gonna send me home with some, um, a little bit of steroids. And then just like they said, if you um, get worse, come back. So at that point we decided to really go full out with um, the, uh, the FLCCC protocol. The, um, basically we worked with our doctor on getting exactly what was said on there. Um, I, we're doing pretty much all the supplements and um, a, a good portion of the recommended uh, the steroids and the anti-antrogens and um, all of that. And it was rough, but um, within maybe four days of that, I finally started feeling better. And, um, and I know that if I had left the hospital and done what they had said, which was basically almost nothing, um, besides like a little bit of supplements, um, at least they did say the supplements on the discharge papers for the hospital, but it was like a very low dose of I think, vitamin D and vitamin C. But if I had just done that, I know that I would have ended up with my oxygen levels crashing even more and probably, um, I don't know, ICU, I, you know, I, it, I'm certain that my husband and I are certain that following this protocol, um, if it didn't save my life, it, it definitely saved us a lot of heartache and days in the hospital and trauma around, you know, holidays for our family. As it was, I, by the time Christmas came around, I was, you know, walking around feeling much better. Um, it's now been a little over a month and I, and I still have a little bit of a residual cough, but my, my oxygen levels are great. I got, you know, a, a thumbs up from my doctor on, on how well I'm doing. And I just want to say how grateful I am for all the support and guidance from um, FLCCC and really all the work that's gone into developing these protocols because most doctors and certainly a lot of hospitals don't have don't have any real um, workable protocols from everything that I've been hearing from um, people who've gotten it. And uh, now we can help our friends and family with an exact protocol of what they need to have on, on hand. And um, it's, it's pretty great what they're doing. So we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Renee Widrow. We are so grateful that you told us your story and that you chose to take our FLCCC protocol rather than go back to that hospital. You know, 
Your story is so much like what we hear all the time, every day from many, many people who are getting more from our doctors than they are from their local hospitals, more help. And um, it's very interesting to hear this on the day that public health officials have urged the federal government to promote early treatment for COVID. How about that? You know, we think they're about two years late on this. Um, we find it interesting that they've only started promoting early treatment when they've approved a new designer drug to be used for it. Sadly, sadly, they continue to trash the many safe, effective, and inexpensive existing drugs that our doctors and doctors around the world have been using very successfully to help patients like Renee and thousands upon thousands of other patients. We uh, have three nurse practitioners in the background who are also going to be answering some of the questions on Q&A tonight. Um, we are grateful to have them because we always have thousands of you on and we can never get to that many questions in, in just the hour that we have or hour and 15 minutes. So anyway, let's not Take any more time, let's get started with our doctors. First, I'd like to ask Paul and Liz, do you have anything you'd like to say before you take the first questions? Hey, <clears throat> thanks Betsy. And uh, thanks Liz for being here. So I just wanted to make a comment about Renee's my story, because I think there's a lesson to be learned. So, and Liz may not agree with me. We'll see what she says. COVID is a clinical diagnosis. Getting a test and going for a test is a complete waste of time, as Rene discovered, because all it did is it prolonged the time to treatment. COVID-19 is a clinical diagnosis. If you think you have COVID, you treat it for COVID. The PCR test, the antigen test, has so many false negatives and false positive tests. So if you have a flu-like illness, treat it as COVID, start on day one. And you know what, if it's the flu, it really doesn't matter because the treatment for COVID is the same as treatment for the flu. Because what happens is Rene was lucky she escaped going to the hospital because that's a death trap. And the longer you wait, the more the, the disease progresses and you're higher your risk of being hospitalized and dying. So really, if you have a flu-like illness, don't waste your time getting these stupid tests. The tests do have a, have a place in specific situations, but you know what? If you have a flu-like illness in this time, it's COVID, it's not COVID, it's the flu, it's the same thing. Just treat it as if it is. I don't know, do you want to add to that, Liz? I agree with you. I've been so frustrated by the reliance on testing and um, I have no idea how um, valuable the freebie tests that everybody got from the government are. I've not seen good data on those particular ones. But from a pediatric perspective, I just want to make sure that people understand that as of the CDC data, which I honestly don't always trust, but in any event, in this case, 58% of kids have already had COVID at this point in the pandemic. And they usually do very well with it. So I think our biggest job for our children right now is to quit doing things to them in the name of COVID that are actually going to hurt them more than the disease itself. So we may be able to expand upon that with some of the questions that come up. But kids usually do well with COVID. We have not done a good job as their stewards during this pandemic in multiple, multiple ways. So, yeah, let me just add to that and then mm -hmm. we can continue. So uh, I'm not a pediatrician, but I have so much respect for Dr. Mumper. And you know what? My motto is let kids be kids. Let kids do what kids do. Stop all of this nonsense, which has really had such a profound effect on their cognitive, social, uh, intellectual development, as Dr. Mumper illustrated previously. So just stop all this nonsense. Let kids do what kids do. Let them go outside. Let them play. Let them play with each other. Just stop all this nonsense. Well, let's go right into the questions and because we, we have a whole bunch of them, first of all, that people have been asking us all the time before we get too many of them that are, that are typed in tonight. Uh, doctors, everybody, you know, everybody's been talking about the variants. So we've always had a lot of questions about is I mask plus effective for Omicron? 
Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, simply yes. So, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is that um, ivermectin hydroxychloroquine remain effective against Omicron uh, just because of the way it works. Um, in fact, there was a study looking at a test tube study, which becomes relevant maybe a little later because of the stupid Pfizer drug. But basically, it showed that ivermectin was the most effective drug against Omicron. So, you know what, I think, fortunately, Omicron is, a, is much less, it's not as vicious a virus. The inf it, it, you know, one can't completely dismiss it because people are still getting hospitalized and dying, but generally it's a much lesser infection. So yes, eye mask works. And the key has been and always has been early treatment, early treatment, early treatment. That's our mantra, early treatment. The uh, people also want to know, because there's a lot of this floating out there, do the FLCCC telehealth providers um, treat long haul COVID? So, you know, that's a question difficult to answer. We, you know, the people on the, uh, the list of practitioners in the telemedicine, you know, we, we provide that as a service. We don't control how they treat patients. We don't tell them how to treat patients. So they're already independent practitioners. Uh, you know, we have our iRecover protocol and patients are obviously free to download and look at it. And they should discuss it with their practitioner, whether it's a telemedicine practitioner or their regular PCP. So, you know, we're not in the business of treating patients. We're here to educate. We're here to provide information. You know, we do not sell medicines. Uh, we don't, you know, we, we're not in the, we're not into treating patients per se. We have a question following up on that for our pediatrician. And that is the question, do children get long haul COVID? Can they get it? Yeah. So sometimes um, the vast majority of children do well. And ironically, the younger they are, the better they tend to do. So for example, when a baby gets COVID, they might have one day of a pink eye or one day of a runny nose. And that's all. And the only reason that we would even think about making that diagnosis is that other people in the family had it. Um, as you get older, you tend to do worse in general with COVID, although the vast majority of kids still do well. One of the interesting things about why babies do so well is that they don't have very many ACE receptors in their nasal passages. So they don't really have a place for the virus uh, to attack them as much as older people do. But in the teenage um, groups, sometimes we do see long haul COVID. The most typical presentation is fatigue. But I have to say that one of my patients who has the equivalent of long haul COVID seemed to really get that from receiving the vaccine and not actually having the illness. This was a patient with very complex, complicated mold toxicity, lots of ongoing oxidative stress. And when he got the vaccine, he developed extreme fatigue that went on for months and was pretty debilitating. So I do really worry about long haul COVID either from the illness or perhaps from the vaccine. And it seems to, uh, what I worry about is that somehow the spike protein, wherever it comes from, um, is uh, not good for mitochondria. And so you've got all these multiple body systems. In pediatrics, we were always taught, you should think about mitochondrial illness anytime a child has uh, three different organ systems involved. Because most of the time, kids are going to get one thing and they're you know, good to go. They don't typically have a laundry list of multiple medical problems. So I do worry about the mitochondria. I worry about microglial activation. I worry about that particularly in the brain because so many uh, adolescents that have long haul COVID seem to have a lot of cognitive problems, memory problems, and not to mention all the anxiety and depression that goes along with it. So um, when Paul was talking about how the FLCCC protocol 
helps Omicron, I would go so far as to say that the FLCCC protocol helps you when you have multiple types of viruses, helps you when you have oxidative stress, helps you when you have mitochondrial impairment, it helps you when you have mast cell activation syndrome, you know, all these different multi-system illnesses which involve ongoing inflammation are going to get better with a lot of the stuff we use in the FLCCC protocol. So I wish people would not worry so much about, um, you know, Omicron versus Delta versus uh, B2 or B4 or, you know, whatever it is, and realize that if we nurture people's innate immune system, um, you know, the innate immune system is much smarter than the Pfizer executive and the innate immune system and the response that our bodies would give to viruses doesn't just do a very targeted, you know, B cell uh, antibody response. It involves T cells and this incredible orchestra of immune function. So I think we need to focus on supporting people's immune systems and not putting stuff into their bodies that we're um, inventing at warp speed and not testing for very long. And um, when we're not being attentive to the downsides of those treatments. You know, we've, uh, we have a lot of questions people asking about which protocol is effective uh, for the long haul. COVID uh, and and the vaccine syndrome. And Paul, you've been working on that one. Um, we have iRecover. I know we're gonna do a program strictly on that in a couple of weeks, but is there a little bit you can help with? So, you know, it's complicated because we don't really understand long COVID that well. And maybe Dr. Mumper can jump in. I think the multiple factors, multiple disease problems, um, multiple pathological pathways. So I don't think there's a single cure-all. You know, what we find is it's really, and there are very few studies looking at long COVID. So I think it, much of it is empirical therapy. The doctor treats the patient and sees what the response is. If the response is poor, then you move on to the next thing. If you have a good response, you carry on. So it's very much a trial and error kind of a, an approach. We kind of have an idea, you need anti-inflammatory treatments, you need improve the immune system, you, you know, which will hopefully get rid of spike. So what when I knew I recover, we basically have first line, second line, and third line therapies, just as an approach, you know, you start off with the least aggressive, and then you escalate. And, um, for example, fluvoxamine is a second-line therapy. It helps some patients. Others, it makes worse. So there's really no, you know, there's no good answer. It's not as simple as treating acute COVID. And I think it's because there's so many different disease pathways involved, and we really don't have a good understanding. So it's much, I think it's, it's trial and error. It seems low-dose naltrexone is, seems to be, you know, the new, the new, boy on the block and seems to do really quite well. I think we still need to make sure our vitamin D levels are, are adequate. We still need to take aspirin because these patients have terrible clotting disorders. So it's kind of, there's no single magic drug. It's a combination of treatments and you do what works. Um, Dr. Mumford, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, Paul, I thought you were clever when you wrote that section um, to make reference to the similarities with other conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome. So I think about some of the incredible pioneers in that disease who got ostracized just as much as you and I are now back in the 90s. But people like Paul Cheney that did lots of work on that or Malcolm Hopper from the UK that worked on um, Gulf War syndrome, you know, all these sort of complex multi-system illnesses have a lot of similarities. Now, I happen to be a huge fan of low-dose naltrexone. Um, my experience with of it- what? That, could you repeat that? Yes, it's low-dose naltrexone. So naltrexone is the thing that you'll see in the movies when somebody's, you know, overdosed on an opioid and they'll come in with a shot and jab it in their leg. 
Um, but it also, when you use it at very low doses between one and 4.5 milligrams, it has an incredible ability to be an anti-inflammatory. It recruits your endorphins and your enkephalins, so you get some pain relief. I love it for chronic neuropathic pain. Um, I have one patient that was in chronic uh, neurologic pain for four or five years before I got to him. And low-dose naltrexone turned his life around, and he went from being largely bedridden at home to, I just went to see him do a rap concert where he was the singer last week. So um, that's a little tidbit from functional medicine world, and I think it uh, has a real role in uh, these kinds of diseases because like ivermectin, it's so multimodal. I love these drugs that you know, don't just do one thing for you. And uh, low-dose naltrexone is in that category, I think. Doctors, we have a, we have a good follow-up question here. Sandra and a whole bunch of other people are here concerned about which of the drugs in our protocols that you've used deal with this loss of hair and loss of taste and loss of smell that persist after COVID. Help! <laughs> Oh my goodness, Liz, do you want to address the loss of smell and taste, which is, uh, it's a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And I don't have a great, uh, I don't have anything that's been a great fix on that. I will say whenever I think about people that can't smell or taste, my first go-to is zinc. So sometimes zinc can be helpful to restore taste, but not always when it's from the loss of smell from COVID. So I think some of that might be anti that we need to do anti-inflammatory because the olfactory uh, bulbs and all the nose stuff that's all close to the brain that got uh, presumably so inflamed with the initial um, infection, you know, maybe we need to treat this very recalcitrant inflammation. Now, the functional medicine folks have um, like a little protocol where people try to retrain their smell. So you go out and you get all kinds of, you know, strong smelling things and you smell them frequently, you know, um, ammonia and cinnamon and peppermint. And you, you go through this program where you try over time to rehab yourself. And some of my colleagues have had good luck with that. But I think there's so much about what we don't understand about what the underlying cause is, you know, the way I like to do medicine is to try to figure out what the cause is, go upstream and take care of that. But if we haven't figured that out yet, or at least I don't know about it, it makes it harder. And about the hair. Yeah, so I must, I must agree with Liz. The problem is it's difficult to treat something you don't understand. So, you know, we somewhat treating these people blindly, you know, I would agree with Liz. I think zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, and the gelicitiva is a good start. Um, since there may be inflammation and spike may be involved, it's maybe worthwhile trying, you know, a low-dose course of uh, ivermectin. Again, I think it's much of a hit and miss thing. We don't really have a good answer. And it seems to be very disabling to people because if they lose their sense of smell, they can't enjoy food, they can't enjoy coffee, and it's quite functionally disabling. So, I mean, although it seems like a nuisance symptom, people struggle with this. So I think it's worthwhile, you know, taking these over-the-counter things first, zinc, vitamin C, nigella sativa, um, see how they go. And then um, maybe a short course of ivermectin. And obviously smell training is a, is a good idea you know, trying to re-stimulate your, your nerves. And the hair part, can anybody have anything to say about that? So in terms of hair loss, and my colleague Christina is on the line, or she's answering questions. So we were contacted by a physician who was treating hair loss with high doses of omega-3 fatty acids, and apparently it restored the hair. It didn't work really well on me. Um, Christina didn't, she tried rubbing it on my head and work, but it seems that um, high dose omega-3 fatty acids, in a way I don't understand, maybe it's partly because of the anti-inflammatory properties, um, did stimulate hair growth. 
<coughs> so you know what? I think it's worthwhile trying these interventions. Okay. I have <laughs> other theory. Um, in my world, in pediatrics, um, some kids that get alopecia or alopecia areata, where they go totally bald, um, have immune dysregulation, and they actually respond oddly enough to antifungal treatments. So my concern with um, COVID in some ways is that, you know, you, your body, when you get in trouble with it, you have such a sort of maladaptive hyper inflammatory response to it. And then I worry in people that are getting the vaccines that there is a period where your immune system is a little bit uh, dampened down by those. So I agree that omega-3s are one of the things we think about when people have scalp issues, also vitamin A. Um, and you know, some hair loss is just a response to uh, a bad inflammation <laughs> at some point that basically shuts down your hair shaft uh, production. But I would try a few things like that. And then I would try to think about the patient, do they have other signs that their immune system is dysregulated? Um, you know, if it's a woman, is she having a lot of vaginitis that might be candidal? Um, if it's a child, do they have a red anal ring that might suggest that they've got a lot of uh, fungus in their gut? Um, that is purely speculative and not, I've not seen a single paper on it. Um, so take it for what it's worth, which may not be much. Okay, here's a question from Bernadette Snyder. She says, um, my husband and I contracted COVID on February 20th. It was my sickest Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, but Friday night, my husband got very sick and is in bed still today, sick with severe fatigue. How long can I expect the fatigue to last for my husband? There are times he seems not quite coherent as well. We are using both the FLCCC protocols and Dr. McCullough's protocol. Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, obviously this disease runs a spectrum. Some people get over it within 24 hours. Others, it's a prolonged illness and it may morph into, you know, the chronic fatigue of long COVID. So that's why I think the best prevention of long COVID is early aggressive treatment, because I think that that decreases the viral load, which may play, a, play an important role. It decreases the inflammation. And, you know, I cannot stress enough the use of you know, providone iodine nasal spray mouthwashes together with ivermectin is very effective. So, you know, that's why early treatment is so critical. Um, you know, obviously, once he's passed the viral replication phase, so generally the virus replicates after onset of symptoms five or six days. So he's beyond that. So he's now suffering from the consequences of spikemia or spike toxicity and inflammation. So um, I would continue, you know, the, the vitamin C, the vitamin D, then the gelis sativa, you know, these, these compounds. Um, and, you know, obviously physical rehab is important. Diet is important. The other thing is that COVID changes your microbiome. It causes a complete change in your microbiome. And so you need to try and restore your microbiome, which is your poop. You want to have healthy poop, not unhealthy poop. Um, so you can take pre and, pro, uh, pre and probiotics, but um, what I like is kefir. Kefir is this um, yogurt solution, which has been used for 2000 years that has all kinds of really good bacteria. So it's, you know, it has nutrition, but it has a whole host of um, really good pre and probiotics. And it's good too. Yes. So I think it's a good thing to take anyway, but I think it may help to restore the microbiome. So, you know, there's no simple magic trick. It's not like, you know, Harry Potter is going to wave his wand and make everything get better. It's, it's for some people, it's a struggle and you've got to use multiple drugs and, you know, it can last a while. You know, what do you think, Liz? Um, I think it's really important to move, even though you're so fatigued, because if you stay in bed for a week, 
you lose an incredible amount of muscle mass. And the more you're in bed, the weaker you get. So that's one thing. And then after doing all the things Paul said, um, if the fatigue was still there, I don't think it's a bad idea um, to add in some other mitochondrial support. You know, vitamin C is actually great for your mitochondria. It's one of the things that they really need um, to go through the pathway that they take to make energy. But I would add in some B vitamins, specifically riboflavin is a big one and niacin. And then I'd also think about giving uh, CoQ10 and um, L-carnitine is the food for the mitochondria. Now, having said all that, you know, I'm not your doctor. Um, I am not really giving medical advice. This is more of an educational kind of theoretic case kind of discussion. But I would at least think about some of those things because it sounds like he's having a really rough time and you have to really rescue him so that he doesn't get stuck in that hyperinflammatory fatigue state for too long. You know what Liz says is so important. If you don't move it, you lose it. So I think people just laying in bed is a really bad thing that, you know, just getting up and standing and just taking a few steps is so important, weight bearing, just to, to, to move around. And I do like the idea of, of protecting the mitochondrion because they're obviously the powerhouses of the cell. And, you know, I agree with vitamin C and CoQ. Uh, the other thing which is really excellent for the mitochondrion, which people forget, is melatonin. Melatonin yeah. is such an important mitochondrial antioxidant. And so these are really simple things to do. So, you know, if, I think if you have mild disease, you know, that's fine. You know, I got Omicron. I took, uh, I took um, ivermectin. I shoved iodine in my nose. I was better within 24 hours. It was done. But I think the more, you know, the more serious the symptoms, the more you have to escalate the treatment. By the way, talking about those nose rinses, uh, we've had some questions about people saying, should I use hydrogen peroxide as a nose rinse and gargle? I see it isn't on your guidelines. Why not? Yeah, so I don't like hydrogen peroxide because um, it, it can be dangerous. And in fact, there are studies that have looked at a whole host of different compounds in terms of the ability to kill SARS-CoV-2. And the ones that we, you know, that are most effective on our list. The other thing which is quite interesting is that Baby Johnson's hair shampoo actually is, it's been used apparently for sinusitis. You dilute it up and you squish it in your nose. Apparently it's quite good against SARS-CoV-2. So I don't particularly recommend hydrogen peroxide because I think it can be a bit dangerous. Um, the things we recommend are proven and I think are safe. Um, and anyway, you know, I think a antiviral antibacterial mouthwash is such a good thing you know it, it it's you know firstly if you you don't want to kiss your kids you want to have a good you don't have smelly breath so it's good for smelly breath it's good for gingivitis and it actually is good for all kinds of respiratory viruses so you know i've got into the habit of goggling in the morning and goggling at night um hasn't helped my hair loss but hopefully it's <laughs> it protects me Here's it. while we're on the medicine question. Somebody says, um, am I supposed to take hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin together or separately? So that's again, a good question. Generally, we recommend them separately. Um, there are some people with Omicron who are using both together. Uh, it seems that hydroxychloroquine may be slightly more effective against this variant than the previous variants. So you know what? I don't, I'll see what Liz says. I don't have a good answer. I think, again, depends upon severity of illness. You know, if you have mild Omicron, I think either one is fine. If you have more serious disease, then I don't think there's a problem using both together. And I know Dr. Corey's not here. He's gone to his ballet lesson, but he uses, he uses a lot of uh, the two together with good success. So, you know, much like most of medicine, I think it has to be individualized by the patient, the, the severity of symptoms. And in my population, honestly, most of the kids are going to get better with things like vitamin D and vitamin C. And, you know, if I can get them to do the nose washes and the gargling, um, I have not personally done uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in the same patient at the same time. I typically try to pick one or the other and go for it. Here's some interesting questions about 
perhaps complications with some of the things. Uh, Erica Lofman wants to know, what about using povidone iodine if you have thyroid issues? I've heard it can be a problem for people with thyroid disease. Okay, so that's a good question. So we don't recommend povidone iodine used chronically. So it should be used for post-exposure prophylaxis. So if you're a healthcare worker or you, you're in a family and someone gets exposed, you, you, you should use it. If you have acute COVID, you want to use it. He is correct in that. I mean, there are studies in which people have used it chronically and you do get increased serum iodine levels, which may affect the thyroid. However, on the other hand, there are people who think that many people are iodine deficient and that this may be beneficial. So our recommendation is, you know, do the mouthwashes, the, the, the Crest scope, the Listerine, you know, the, the, those mouthwashes do daily because they're very safe. And obviously you don't swallow them. The iodine, I recommend with post-exposure prophylaxis and acute infection. So one really doesn't have to worry about the iodine toxicity. Here's another good question about this. Um, Elizabeth Hoare says, I am a type one diabetic. I took ivermectin prophylactically, also povidone nasal washes, followed the protocol, had Omicron and took the protocols. Should I expect any lab work changes at my next physical like kidney function tests and thyroid tests, et cetera? So, you know, if, if she treated early and got over the infection, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, she should just do what, what she normally does. I wouldn't obsess too much about her, her lab levels. Obviously, she's a type 1 diabetic. She knows how to use her insulin. So I don't think there are any specific things she should worry about. Uh, Liz, would you agree? You see, I mean... I, I agree. With type 1, I, I do wonder if during the time you were sick, you know, typically that means you have to adjust your insulin. We would want you to be taking lots of fluids, um, not going into ketoacidosis, you know, all those kinds of things. But with the protocols that we have, I do not think that means you have to go get a CBC and a chem screen to make sure your kidneys and your liver are still functioning well. Here's a question for you, Dr. Mumper, uh, from Daniel Kraft. It says, since pandas uh, is considered by many to be a post-viral or post-bacterial inflammatory encephalitis, could the FLCCC protocols possibly be helpful? Do you know of any doctors who have had success with it? So um, PANS, which is uh, when it's caused by other viruses or PANDAS, which specifically refers to strep, is definitely an autoimmune encephalitis that needs very elegant treatment. Um, there are a host of protocols that are specifically tailored to that. It basically involves treating the underlying virus or bacteria, which sometimes we have to be pretty aggressive about. But it also has this huge anti-inflammatory component. And remember, we were saying, you know, whenever you've got inflammation, you've got ongoing oxidative stress, it's bad for your mitochondria, it's bad for um, your mast cells. And so there's going to be a fair amount of overlap, theoretically, because some of the supportive stuff from FLCCC will definitely help you with PANS and PANDAS. Um, I am not aware that we have looked at that specifically uh, with ivermectin and pandas, although I have to say I have become a big ivermectin fan, and since it's such a great anti-inflammatory and has so many other great purposes, I think that we should start experimenting with that for the kids with pans and pandas, and um, I have several colleagues that are pandas experts uh, one's writing a book, and I might mention to her that we need to actually dive into the whole ivermectin uh, possibilities for pandas. Pandas, if you catch it early and you treat it and you get lucky and the stars are aligned, you can take a kid who's got so much OCD that they can't even get out of the house because they have to be counting their steps over and over or counting um, you know, whether or not they turned off the light bulb, and you can turn them around in days sometimes. However, if you're not lucky, those are kids that wax and wane for years and they, they get these horrible relapses where they get acute anxiety and acute separation anxiety and acute tics and twitches and OCD and their friends all make fun of them. 
So we owe it to the kids to, to think about that as a possibility. And that's a great question. It's very intriguing. Thank you for bringing that up. Here's another one about a condition. Susan Anderson says, does having a gastric bypass prevent adequate absorption of the supplements that I'm taking per the FLCCC protocol? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, you know, when they do gastric bypass, you bypass the proximal ileum where a lot of um, trace minerals are absorbed. Um, so, um, you know, independent of COVID, you know, people who've had gastric bypass surgery really need to be on a um, very regimented protocol of uh, iron and mineral supplementation. So, I mean, many of the, you know, um, trace elements absorbed in the proximal ileum, which is completely bypassed by um gastric bypass surgery. So it's very important that these people, you know, consult with a, a, a nutritionist and actually have their levels measured just to make sure that the, the, the levels are, are adequate. Um, it is a really important question. I mean, things like thiamine is absorbed in the uh, proximal ileum. And if you don't take thiamine, I mean, it's quite ridiculous. You can get beriberi because it's not adequately absorbed. So these people have to be take be very diligent, have to take large doses of vitamins, and it really needs to be closely monitored. Uh, would you agree with that, Liz? Yes, and the other thing I would really worry about is B12, um, which is also absorbed in the ileum. And B12 is, imp is important in some biochemistry that I think of as one of the major crossroads in our body. It's called methylation biochemistry and B12 su uh, supplies methyl groups to that. So downstream from that, so first of all, that, that actual biochemistry helps you regulate your gene expression. You turn your genes on and off because of that. But you also make glutathione, which is a very important antioxidant. Um, it's very important for detoxification. It helps your gut, it helps your immune system, it helps your mitochondria. So I would worry about B12 also. And I wonder how we actually present that so that it goes into the gut. I wonder if we have to use like liposomal uh, preparations that are surrounded by fat so that it can go further down and be absorbed. I have no idea. That's a great question to um, Yeah, so I mean, in terms of B12, there may be a place for intramuscular B12, just because, you know, you're losing the, what's called intrinsic factor, which the stomach makes. So you actually can't absorb B12. So Dr. Mump is absolutely correct. These people can be profoundly vitamin B deficient. So it's really incumbent on the, you know, the surgeon and the nutritionist to monitor these people very closely. Okay. Um, we're getting a request. Liz, if you could turn your audio up because sometimes we're getting a little muddy audio on you and hard to hear might make it a little bit better. Okay. And that would be great. Um, here's an interesting question uh, from Karen Haberman. Can shedding from a person who had a booster the day before I met with her in my house in which the person said she had a very sore arm and did not feel well could this cause my gums to bleed? This was new for me. I had not had this kind of bleeding before. I woke up with an area, the area bleeding. I'm, and I'm not vaccinated, she says. So Betsy, you ask a fascinating question. And so I've been arguing with my boyfriend about this, you know, Dr. Corey, whether <laughs> there is such a thing as shedding. And recently we spoke to a, an expert on this and apparently... You know, I thought it was mumbo jumbo. It didn't really make sense to me. You know, how could someone who's been vaccinated affect the unvaccinated just by being in close proximity? So what they tell me is that, you know, obviously the nanoparticle goes everywhere, including the skin, so that, you you know, normal people shed their, their, their skin, their, their, their squamous cells desquamate. Um, so they're telling me, and, you know, I... I think you have to believe stuff these days because nothing's impossible that if you're in close contact with someone who's been vaccinated, I think you have to be in reasonable close contact and that you touch their skin and whatever, 
that it is possible that you can transmit the spike protein and it can affect you. Um, it sounds it sounds weird. It sounds fanciful. It sounds like it's you know from the Disney School of Medicine, but you know what? You you can't discount anything these days. And that we have had reports of people who've been in proximity to someone who's been vaccinated, and then they develop these weird symptoms, usually menstrual dysfunction. So, um, you know, I think it's an, it's an issue. And in fact, you know what, what my boyfriend did, you know, that's Pierre, he had a patient who actually had this shedding syndrome. He treated the patient with ivermectin and the patient apparently got better. So, you know what, I think you just got to keep an open mind and, um, you know what? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Dr. Mumford, well, what do you think about shedding? I think that enough people have reported it back before they knew anybody else would ever report such a thing. This has gone on since very early after the shots were rolled out that I think that we can't dismiss it just because we don't understand it. And one of the proposed mechanisms is also uh, has to do with how a little piece of the spike protein can kind of pinch off and that's been a proposed mechanism. So I think we're at the stage where we don't know the hows and the whys, but that we have to acknowledge that it's a phenomenon and that we shouldn't be sending these people to psychiatrists every time they bring that up. Oh. So, you know, the other thing that came up recently, and I wonder what Dr. Mumper thinks is that, you know, I think we have to assume that many people, you know, a large population have been vaccinated. And so, you know, obviously they have circulating spike protein, which binds to platelets and red cells. So if you get a blood transfusion, you know, it's possible that you're going to get spike protein through the blood transfusion. And it's not something that you intuitively think about. So, you know, while we used to, you know, when people donated blood, we would test for HIV and hepatitis, you know, maybe we should screen whether the patient's been vaccinated because it's and how long ago because it's possible that through blood transfusion you can transmit spike protein what do you think dr mumper um people in my circles are worried about that and are calling for it to be looked into and studied i don't know that any blood banks are actively doing that now but uh i think it's it's a certainly a theoretic uh possibility and um I just think that there were so many uh, unforeseen consequences that people just didn't really um, give the time or the depth to sort out um, before uh, all these recommendations were made rather urgently. So I think we're going to be cleaning up a little bit of uh, messes here and there for a while and trying to figure out what's really going on. I, by the way, speaking of cleaning up, we, we have to go back to, to Dr. Merrick. We have, uh, everybody wants to know, what do you mean by high dose omega-3 that you referenced earlier? Lots of people want to know the dosage. Yeah. So between one and four grams a day. So some people think that, you know, it depends whether it's the DHA or the DEA or whichever. Um, so I think one to four grams a day, we actually have listed it on our protocol, um, the, the advantage of the, you know, the mixed uh, um, uh, omega-3 is it's much more inexpensive than the SEPA, which is a, which is a basically a medication for which you require prescription and is, is quite expensive. So the, uh, you know, the apparent improvement in hair loss was with the SEPA. So, uh, which is, which is ethyl, um, whatever, ethyl omega-3. So whether there's a difference, we don't know, but I would say between one and four grams a day of uh, omega-3s should be good. Here's you know, a One gram isn't very high dose and three to four grams would be a higher dose. And just as a reminder, um, at Harvard years ago, they used seven or eight grams a day in people with bipolar illness and they were able to get them off of their um, psychiatric medications. So another strategy is you can keep taking your omegas until your stools start to be very oily and then you can back off. 
Yeah, so she's absolutely correct, you know. <laughs> uh, she's smart. Yes, I agree. I was being conservative, maybe to start off with three to four, but then increase the dose because it is pretty safe. I mean, Eskimos eat a lot of omega-3s. So just increase the doses you tolerate and see how you do. Um, I think it's treatment to an effect. But yes, I think Dr. Mump is absolutely correct. Here's another difficult case we have from Mary Scanlon says, I got COVID starting in February 1st and I got all the meds on the protocol. I still get short of breath on exertion and I have a productive cough. I'm wondering if I should resume exercise to rebuild my strength or rest until the symptoms resolve. Do I need to follow up with an MD for additional medications? Yeah, so that uh, see what Dr. Mumper says. I think if you complain, if patients are having shortness of breath, then there is a possibility they have pulmonary involvement. And for that reason, I think they need to see a physician. They certainly need a chest x ray to see what's going on because they may have residual pulmonary involvement from COVID. And if so, they need corticosteroids. They could also have some atypical pneumonia, but this would. You know, the, the possibility of ongoing pulmonary inflammation from COVID is a reality, and that would require treatment from steroids. So certainly, I think that the, you know, the, the person needs to see their physician who needs to do it, at least a chest x-ray, needs to do some blood work, and then consider treatment with corticosteroids. You know, I don't think this is something that people should do without the direction of, of a clinician. The other important information would be to wear a pulse oximeter and see how low you drop when you're um, on exertion. Um, because um, if you do need steroids, you, you know, you don't necessarily just need the little teeny doses that they sometimes use in the hospital, but you would need a skilled pulmonologist, internal medicine doc or intensivist to to really help that situation. Oh my goodness, that's such a good suggestion. So that I think, you know, People who are struggling with COVID should get a pulse oximeter. They're not that expensive. And what, what's really important is what happens to the saturations when you exercise. So if you have, you know, exercise-induced desaturations and they go really low, that is very worrisome. If your sets stay in the 90s, well, that's that's actually okay. But if you have profound desaturation with exercise, that's that's an indication of significant lung involvement. And one certainly should seek a, 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 the advice of a, of a physician. Here's somebody, Carrie Deschamps says, my employer has imposed a $200 monthly COVID surcharge in addition to my healthcare premium because I have elected not to be vaccinated. I had COVID in December 2020, but I don't know which variant. Is there any new or updated information on natural immunity and as to whether it has been confirmed to be equal to effective severe illness prevention? Yeah, so that's an absurd, Dr. Mumper can answer, but that's absurd. <laughs> I think anybody who in, inflicts such a policy should, how can I be kind, should be put in jail because that's just, that's just evil. So we know going back to Edward Jenner, I think in 1770, who actually noticed that people who had cowpox protected you against smallpox. So we've known for over 200 years that natural immunity provides much better infection than vaccination. So I would say it provides better protection. You know, if you want to be politically correct, you say it provides equal protection. But there's no question of that, that natural immunity is very effective. And if you think about it, it only makes sense because when you get a natural infection, you get it through the nose and your nose or pharynx. And what's most important is you make local antibodies, which are very important in protection. When you get the thing in your, in your, in your arm, that's not how you get COVID. You don't get COVID through your arm. So it gives you a dysfunctional immunity. So there's absolutely no question of doubt. And I think it, we should, we beyond arguing about this, that the earth is round, it's not flat. We need to accept that. We need to accept that natural immunity is as good, if not better than the vaccine. And my friend, Dr. Mumper, what do you, what do you want to weigh in? So I want to say that there are about 80 studies now that have looked at natural immunity. And um, so I think that it's very clear 
that this person might be good for another two decades. Remember the people that got SARS in 2003 were, still had antibodies um, 17, 18 years later. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, I'm going to argue that he should say that the vaccinated people should pay the fine because the latest data is actually showing negative vaccine efficacy in some groups. So if you Google this, you'll see that, you know, if you've got positive vaccine efficacy, there's usually a line and it's a green arrow going up. And if you've got negative vaccine efficacy, meaning that the vaccinated are actually more likely to get infected, that's a, a red line going down. And in some age groups, the vaccine efficacy is negative 125 now. I mean, so I think these fines were, uh, first of all, they were a way to coerce people to get vaccinated. And when you have an experimental product, according to the Nuremberg Code that was put into effect after all the horrible stuff that happened in World War II, you should not be coercing people. You shouldn't be rewarding them. You shouldn't be fining them. You shouldn't be giving them lap dances if they get a vaccine. You know, it's supposed to be an informed consent choice. So I hope that at some time soon, we're going to have some legislative action or some political action that makes these kinds of things not continue to happen because I don't think that they're scientifically supported. And I think they're fundamentally unethical also. We have a, you're speaking politically that we have a question about from Robert saying, please comment on the implied warning from the president in his State of the Union address as to coming COVID-19 mutations. Are there any coming that we know of? So, you know, the one thing about the future is unpredictable. Um, I wish we could see into the future. So, the answer is we don't know, actually. Um, so Omicron may be a godsend in that, you know, people, the many people who have, I mean, you know, Dr. Mumper said maybe 60, 70, 80% of people will have had Omicron. They will get natural immunity, which will protect them against other variants. And maybe this virus will just kind of be, dwindle out and become endemic. Now, whether, whether, we get another virus or another muted mutant variant is unknown. I don't think we know. So some of us are optimistic, others are a little bit more pessimistic. So we don't know. What do you think, Dr. Mumper? I just think that um, my rule of thumb is, is that viruses are smarter than we are and that they're very good at adapting to their environments so that they can continue to thrive, which basically means they have to hijack you and hijack your cellular um, machinery. So I think that we should just come to the understanding that we have to live in harmony with germs. We have to live in harmony with viruses. Remember, viruses um, help modulate our genome. So they actually do some good stuff for us genetically. Um, we can't just assume that the humans are going to rise above and that we're going to kill anything else that threatens us. I think that this militaristic um, attitude has not served us well. So, you know, there are some of us that were saying even in the beginning of this, that um, we should take more of an adaptive approach rather than this, let's be sure we can kill it. Um, remember that the vaccine we're using now is one that was developed um, against a virus that really no longer exists. So I think germs are smart. I think we all need to live in harmony. I think we need to trust our immune systems and do what we can so that we've got good innate immunity and then we'll be ready for what comes. And remember when your four-year-old is getting a cold, there's about a one in three chance that it's some type of coronavirus and there is some cross protection you know, from those kids uh, getting up in your lap and um, sneezing on you. So um, I say we should all live together in harmony. How about that? The other thing is, I mean, the, the mechanism of ivermectin has, is such that it kind of prevents any spike protein shedding off and putting anything into a cell. Is that not correct? It blocks the passage so that you don't have to worry about the next variant with a coronavirus? So ivermectin is an interesting drug. It acts in a multiple mechanism. So it does bind spike protein. It actually prevents the viral nuclear protein getting into the nucleus. It also acts on the main protease, 
which is where this new Pfizer drug works. It acts on multiple pathways, which makes it such an interesting drug. And it seems unlikely that we're going to get develop resistance to this drug just because it acts in so many different uh, paths of the pathway. So it certainly seems to bind to spike protein. So, you know, I think it was, you know, it's a, it's a natural product. This was found on a golf course in Japan growing in the soil. This was, was given, this was a, a, a gift to us, gift to humanity. This is not something which was made in a lab. This was found in a golf course, a, a saprophytic bacteria was making ivermectin in a golf course in Japan. It was given to us as a gift. And I think that's important. It was not manufactured in a laboratory. We have come to the uh, end of an hour. I Can you take another question? Are you, are you all right? Yeah. Ready for another? Yeah. All right. This one is from uh, Michael Hendrickson. He's in post-COVID recovery, says, I'm still having a lot of mucus and it's dark in color. It's worse when I first wake up. Should I be concerned about that? Huh. So, you know, I, I, would, I would think about, you know, other respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath. You know, this may just be, he has some degree of bronchial inflammation that, that's resolving. And so, you know, Coughing up stuff is okay. It doesn't make sense to, to use a cough suppressant. I mean, you're coughing because there's mucus and there's stuff in your lung. I mean, so I'm not in favor of cough suppressants in less specific situations. I mean, it's analogous to tying, putting a purse string around your butt when you've got diarrhea. You've got to just let it out. So many, many smokers, you know, who, people who smoke have a chronic cough in the morning because they're bringing up all the, you know, all the toxins from smoking. And, you know, we have this very elegant system in the lung of, it's called a mucociliary escalator of, you know, trapping dust and particles and bringing them up. So, you know, I would just follow what, you know, take all the good muties, just follow what happens. I think if it gets worse or he starts coughing up blood or gets short of breath, then, you know, maybe see a physician. Um, but I think it's just part of the normal healing process that, um, and it's usually in the morning. Rick, Rick wants to know something following up on that. Says, I had COVID in November and I'm still having shortness of breath. When should a chest X-ray be repeated? I had to throw that one in. Yeah, so I think if you're having shortness of breath, you know what, you don't want to take chances. You want to go to see your, your, your PCP uh, or healthcare provider and get a chest x-ray. Uh, I wouldn't wait. Well, doctors, thank you. We got in more than 20 questions, uh, quite a few. Uh, and of course, behind the scenes, we have some nurse uh, nurse practitioners who've been answering questions, but um, hey, have a lot of territory. I need to add that, you know what, they're not yeah. just nurse practitioners. These are nurses, nurse practitioners, advanced uh, CRNAs who provide anesthesia. So these are highly experienced nurses. So I just want to acknowledge their expertise. And, you know, I was only joking at the beginning of the hour, but, you know, nurses are part of the team. They help us do what we do. They're very smart people, especially those that pass a lot of gas. So we want to thank them. <laughs> well, for, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Paul and Liz. Let's bring the nurses on. We have Mary Beth Carno. Let's, uh, can we show them to the audience? Mary Beth and Scott Marsland. These, uh, Mary Beth and Scott were here before, and it uh, looks like Christina's with us. We didn't think you could join us, but we're delighted to have Christina. She is our CRNA, and, um, and Lori Kisting is new this, uh, this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the questions that you answered behind the scenes. We try to get as many in, folks, as we can, and we have you know top professionals here helping helping to do that. Betsy, we Betsy, answered half. Yeah. We answered 109 questions out of 267. So we did pretty well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Great. Great going. Well, we hope our audience will be even healthier, you know, as a result of that, maybe we have to do this every so often to, I mean, we're going to keep bringing you folks, you nurses back. 
for this so that we can continue to do that. But maybe we also bring the doctors on for a Q&A session because it seems like, uh, well, we know our audience is interested and likes it. So you folks let us know and, and we'll respond. We're trying to, uh, trying to do the best to help you stay healthy. Uh, by the way, we also honor one of our RNs. Uh, every uh, month we do, and we honor a top nurse. So this month it's Cheryl Ducharme. She's an RN. She's been educating people. She's been directing them to the prescribers to help them get through the pandemic successfully. As, and she said she had COVID in December and followed the FLCCC protocols with success. And she's trying to help other people have the benefit of knowing about the FLCCC protocols and getting to practitioners who can help them. So thank you, thank you, Cheryl. We've got an army of nurses. Thanks to Christina, who's been pulling them all together and, and doing all of this. And that's absolutely, uh, absolutely great for all of us. And of course, for you, the patients. Something else, um, Christina is doing a video and you're going to be able to see this. It's on long haul COVID. And this is a video that you can see right here is a slide from it that talks about the different symptoms. We talked about this a bit tonight, but we're going to have a program dealing with long haul COVID uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, the video, however, if you're already interested in learning more about this, is up on our Odyssey channel under the educational videos section. So this is helping to explain what the symptoms are, helping to explain what works to alleviate them, a lot of which the doctors talked about tonight, but you'll get a lot more coming up. And, um, and then she also talks about guides about where you can get to help people, to doctors that can help you. And finally, folks, it is my pleasure as always to thank you who have been donating. You know, we're up against, we're up against a phenomenal amount of money and manufacturers and oh my goodness. And the people who have new products to sell have one way to do it. That's what they're doing. And they don't like the doctors who say, well, we have a lot of treatments already out there that work. And so you know that the message that we have been putting out, which has really just been to educate, that's what the FLCCC is all about. We are a nonprofit and our whole mission is just to try to help other doctors know what our doctors have learned through research and through their personal experience in ICUs, in hospitals, and others who have we have now a much larger team. Many are uh, private practitioners uh, who do outpatient work. They're all observing as well as researching, and we're about sharing the information. But we're getting censored, and we're having problems because um, they're the phenomenal number of resources that are against us. So when you donate, when you give and bless you. There are many, 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 many hundreds of you who are and all different amounts. It's a godsend for us. And we just thank you. We want to keep our doctors updating the protocols. We want to be able to continue to get our message out. And um, it's just great to do it. So we cannot thank you enough. And that's it. We are coming back next week. Uh, we will have more programs. Uh, Wednesday night is our night or Wednesday afternoon if you're out on the West Coast. We thank you. Thank you to the doctors and um, keep sending us your my stories too.